Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to march through a unique passage today right in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's help once more. And we know that when we ask for God's help, He gives it, right? He promises to do that. And so when we come to Him and ask for wisdom, when we lack it, He promises, according to James chapter 1, to give us wisdom. So we come and ask, and He gives freely. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You that we can come to You about anything and everything. If we can worry about it, if we can be anxious about it, we can pray about it. And so we come to You with all of our anxieties, fears, questions, worries, and we give them to You, and we recognize that as you take care of the lilies in the field, you take care of us. We're of so much more value than them. And you take care of them, so how much more are you going to take care of us? Birds of the air eat every single day, and you provide for them every single day. And we are of much more value than they, and so we're going to be taken care of by our Heavenly Father. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that you tell us to come to you and ask for wisdom. And then you even tell us that when we ask in faith, you promise to give it. And so we come in faith asking you to give us wisdom to see what you have to say, to hear what you have to say, and respond to what you have to say in the way you would have us do that. And we just trust that you're going to lead in everything this morning. We trust that you're speaking through your word, that your, your word is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces the division of the heart and soul. And we just trust that you're going to speak and move. We thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus knew what he was saying, and he said it boldly to a crowd of people who questioned it. He said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There is a wide path and a narrow path. And the wide path is easy. A lot of people opt for that path. The narrow path is small, and few people find that path. Modern-day people, I think you know this, and I see this in my life, modern-day people love comfort. And when we compare eras before, we think about how easy it is to go and buy a chicken from the store and think about what our grandparents and great-grandparents had to do to get a chicken. There are some grandparents in the room that you remember this, like just a couple generations ago, their grandmas would go out and they would get a chicken and they wouldn't just chop the head off. They would just wring that neck and that neck would snap, head would fall off, chicken run around a little bit, pluck all the feathers, rip all the guts out. That was a way of life. Today we go to Kroger, Aldi, Walmart. We pick up a, ch a chicken, frozen. It's in a pack. We're grossed out just to dig out the innards, you know. Novice cooks don't even know there are innards in there. Jordan and I one time were trying to unthaw a chicken to get the innards out, and it took an hour of hard work and sweat and pain to get the innards out of this frozen chicken. I mean, life is so much easier today. If you want to, you know, we think about years gone by, and there's some great things in the past, but there are so many things about today that are easy. I mean, if it, if it gets up beyond 75 degrees in this room, we start to thinking, my goodness, this is unbearable. <laughs> you know what I mean? We have air conditioning. There are a lot, we have a refrigerator. We don't have to keep our things we need to be cold buried in a hole in the backyard or down at the stream. 
we can go and open a refrigerator door. We don't have a, a cellar in the basement dug out just to keep things at 55 degrees. Our refrigerator keeps things at 42 degrees. There's some really neat things about technology, really crazy things like Facebook and Twitter, but some really good things like refrigerators and air conditioners. People today, though, love comfort. We love convenience and ease, and everyone wants a happy life. And we compare the two. Ease, we think, kind of goes with happiness. So if we just the easiest way, the path of least resistance, that's what we want. We live in a life hack culture. We talked a little bit about that in small group. Happiness and ease and comfort, it's desired by everyone, it seems like, but it's rarely attained. And those life hacks promise to help us, and some can be rather helpful. If you break glass in your kitchen floor, you'll take a piece of bread after you sweep up the big stuff. You take a piece of bread, just regular bread, sliced bread, and wipe it across the place, and you look at it under the light, you'll see little glass shards everywhere in it. You're welcome. If you take a bottle, a plastic bottle, just a regular soda pop bottle, and you want to extract an egg from the yolk, or the yolk from the egg part, if you'll just squeeze it, put it on top of that yolk, and go... It'll suck that, yellow, that yolk up and leave the white. Again, you're welcome. Some of those things can be really helpful. But as a way of life, it can be quite destructive. Just finding the path of least resistance in everything that we do will get us into some very dangerous places. The pursuit is wide instead of narrow. It's the path of least resistance rather than the mountains, rather than the valleys. I just want to go on the place that's clear. There's no thorns. There's no thistles. But destruction is on the other end of those who take the path of least resistance. There is a road less traveled. Robert Frost. Let's take that road. And as he says, that has made all the difference. Today we're looking at Proverbs in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who wrote so many wise sayings, so many proverbs, took his pen to parchment and did this again for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. He writes down for us supernatural wisdom. And there's a back and forth throughout this book. It's really interesting. There's a back and forth between the Solomon who is living life as if God doesn't exist, who's doing the experimental project for us and saying that if you live life with an atheistic worldview, it's not going to go well. And there's an under-the-sun reality that if you never see the God above the sun, you're going to just waste your life and live it in vanity, and it's not going to be meaningful, and you're not going to find the joy you're looking for, you're not going to find the satisfaction you're looking for. And then we get the pendulum swinging the other way where Solomon just drops for us a lot of wisdom, and we just hear, oh, this is the wisdom from above. This is the wisdom from above the sun that we need. This is God speaking through a man, telling us what we need to hear. And today we get that. Solomon's just going to bring us truckloads of wisdom. Again, we got Proverbs in the book of Ecclesiastes. But here's the deal. There's no smooth way to walk through the book of Proverbs. And there's no smooth way to walk through the chap chapter 7, Ecclesiastes. They're encapsulated thoughts, Proverbs are, encapsulated thoughts. And so you get, you get this one big idea in a little verse... And then you move on to another verse with another big idea that's completely encapsulated. So it's almost like it's a big idea, main idea for a sermon, verse by verse. But then if we're just careful, if we're careful as we go through these, these, these few verses, we're going to see themes that rise up. And so if you're going to preach through the book of, of Proverbs, you have to preach the themes. It's very difficult to go verse by verse. You've got to catch the themes that pop up out of the pages. And that's what we get to do here in this chapter. There's a main theme. There's a main theme. We need to take each statement as it is and then connect the dots and get the main theme. And here's the main theme. There is a popular way. We could call it the wide path, the path of least resistance. There's a popular way and an unpopular way to live life. What, you, what road you take, what path you take, 
will make all the difference. One way leads to life and joy, and the other leads to death and despair. One, le one way leads to life and joy, and the other way leads to death and despair. Make no mistake, there's popularity attached to one way and unpopularity attached to the other way. Praise and adulation of the masses with one path, mockery, on the other path. So we're going to pick one. Look at verse 1 in chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Well, what does that mean? Again, this is going to be a little bit choppy because we're going to take each verse as it is and then let those themes rise to the surface. A good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment is symbolism for something that's very expensive. Precious ointment exists for those who are living in lavish luxury. It was a rarity. Precious ointment was something you could only get if you sold something of value or if you had a lot of money already to spend on extra things. And being a man or a woman of integrity is better than life's luxuries. Now, if we do some time to think about this, a good name is better than precious ointment or fine, expensive, luxurious things. We see the way the world lives and the way God is calling us to live and how much at odds they are with each other. It's interesting that Hollywood sells its soul to get fine ointment. When we think about, when we think about uh, like uh, these award shows that come on, I can't, I can't stomach them anymore. I don't ever watch them anymore. The Oscars, I used to like getting the thing out and picking out you know, who's going to win what movie and that kind of stuff. And then you get on and you just get lectured the entire time from people who have no morals whatsoever telling us how to live our lives, telling all of American society how to be moral people. They all thank Harvey Weinstein and then turn their back on Harvey Weinstein. You see, Harvey Weinstein gave a bunch of women what women really wanted. They didn't care about a good name. Yes, he mistreated these women, but these women walked in. And what they wanted was a role in a TV show. And so they were willing to sell their soul to get it. Men do this as well, doing terrible things to get what they really want. He got away with terrible things for years because he had this he had this leverage. I'll give you fame if you give me what you want. They didn't care about a good name. They wanted precious ointment. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is destruction. The world does not care about a good name. It just doesn't. There's a second half to this verse. Look at the second part. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. The day of death better than the day of birth. This whole verse, this first verse, is setting us up for a compare and contrast all the way through here. There's something that's better and there's something that's worse. And in one way, the big way, the narrow way, precious ointment is better than a good name. And then the second half of the verse is saying there's something better. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And the rest of the verses are going to follow the same pattern. There's a better way and a worse way. And as we look through it, we're going to see that there's this, this gravitas, there's this gravity to one way. And it's, it's just easy. It fits the bill of being easier, better, more attractive. It's just this, this is what I would rather have. And this other way, at first glance, it just feels bad. It feels wrong. It doesn't feel good. But there's a promise to these things that feel bad, that doesn't feel good, that feels harmful. There's a promise that's attached to these. The better way, you'll take the narrow path. You'll find life. You'll find joy. And if you take the wide path, there's promises attached in the wide path. Here, there's, there's promises. There's the carrot dangling in front. You'll, you'll get this, or the donut, whatever. I don't know why you know the carrot. Nobody really wants the carrot. There's a donut <laughs> in front. And there's promises attached, and they won't satisfy. How could death be better than birth? 
You know, death is something that everybody is terrified of in our society. Just terrified. COVID has made it. It's like people are so terrified of something that you have like a, almost 100% chance of living. And everybody's shaking in their boots. What in the world? And all these crazy memes going around talking about how, you know, staying home is heroic as D-Day. Goes, going and fighting the storm in the beaches of Normandy. Like the heroes of today just stay home. And there's a time to stay home. If you're sick, stay home. I get that. But we have a society that's been crumbling and, and terrified absolutely terrified, terrified of something that it's so minuscule that that the odds are so small. And again, I'm not saying live or be foolish. I'm just saying people are terrified to death. But for the believer, how awesome is death? The Apostle Paul said something crazy one time. He said to live is Christ. And you know what? To die is gain. To die is gain. As amazing as life is, and Paul lived a hard life. He, He got to experience riches and poverty. He got to experience great views on the river, on the lake, and he got to experience being shipwrecked and beaten. He, a wide swath of life Paul got to experience. But life is really good. I can testify. I, I really love my life. But if death is gain, how much better is death going to be than life? death is gain? So even though there's a clear choice to begin with in, in this passage, a wide path, a popular way, the preacher is, it's like he's warning us, there's something better here. If you'll just take time to think and, and process and just consider, you'll see that there is a better way. If you're not willing to think, if all you want to do is feel and find the easy way and walk the wide path, you'll be on that broad road, but you won't get what you want in life. Look at verse 2. Let's follow our pattern. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Just by way of illustrating again. At first glance, what do you want? Do you want to go to the house of feasting or do you want to go to a funeral? At first glance, is everybody in agreement? I want to go to a house of feasting. I definitely don't want to just go hang out at funerals. Give me some feasting, please. But Solomon's saying, no, 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 no. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. What does he mean? Better to go to the funeral than go to a potluck? So why is it better? Mourning, here's the deal. Mourning puts a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, face to face with the end of the matter. With the brevity of life. I've, I've talked to Dennis about this before, and any preacher will tell you that it's, e- it's somewhat easier to preach at a funeral than it is at a wedding because people are face-to-face with the reality that's coming their way. You know, a funeral has a way of making you reflect on life. If you're willing, if you're willing to go there, a funeral, a house of mourning will have, have you thinking about things that a house of feasting will never have you thinking about. What matters in life? What doesn't matter in life? How should I be living my life? How should I be conducting myself before God and others? And if you're not willing to be in places of mourning, you will miss some of the biggest answers of life. At the place of feasting, you can have fun, you can make memories, but you will not be face-to-face with those most difficult questions you have to answer. You can hide. You can hide in the house of feasting. We'll get to a little bit more of that here in a minute. But you can't hide at the house of mourning. You can't shut down. You can't kind of close your eyes and just run out of the room. But if you'll sit there and you'll be there and you will do the work of mourning, you will get answers that you will never get at the house of feasting. Death is where we are all headed 
And we should lay it to heart. The living will lay it to heart. Um, you're going to die one day. And you don't know when the day of death is. Could be today. Could be tomorrow. Could be 50 years from now. But you will die at some point. Death comes to us all. And refusal to mourn, to think about deep things. Mourning has a way of opening up emotional canyons in our soul. And if we're not willing to go to those difficult places, like we're, we're, actually, we're actually shoving away deep joy as well. Those deep crevices of pain, when God comes to restore and to heal, that's why the Apostle Paul can say, I consider, consider the present sufferings of this life not worth comparing to the joys that are going to be revealed. Because those who suffer deeply know what that means. If the joy that's going to be revealed is so much greater, and I can't even compare to the pain, the pain that I felt, if you felt deep pain, then there is balm for your soul in a verse like that. Same thing with this. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of the matter. The living will lay it to heart. Death is where we're all headed, and we shouldn't shy away from thinking about it, nor should we be afraid of it, unless you don't know the Lord. Look at verse 3. Superficial laughter won't do. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now, I want you to, first, before we even talk about this, look at the last four words of verse 3. The heart, five words, the heart is made glad. The heart is made glad. We're not talking about a life of perpetual sorrow here when we talk about a verse like this. The heart will be glad, made glad. We're talking about as a living that includes gladness. But it says sorrow is better than laughter. Again, take a poll and everybody in the world and say, what do you want? You want sorrow or laughter? 100 out of 100 people would say laughter, please. 100 out of 100, laughter. But if we can pause think and let the Holy Spirit lead us and consider what Solomon is saying, we can start to answer questions like, why is sorrow better than laughter? How is sorrow better than laughter? And why is it that a saddened face, the heart can be made glad? Gladness of heart is on the other end of sadness of face. Gladness of heart is on the other end of sadness of face. We can say it like this. If you run from everything in life that's painful and sad and causes mourning, you will never actually live life or actually have deep gladness. Gladness is an emotion as is sorrow. And if you try to numb sorrow, your gladness will be numbed as well. The person who avoids all sadness settles for superficiality and fakeness. The person who avoids all sadness settles for a life of superficiality and fakeness. They don't know that by cushioning themselves from pain and difficulty, they are robbing themselves of the very joy that they want. We bubble wrap our life 
Stay away from everything that's dangerous, every single risk that we can consider and think of, every single thing that could possibly cause us pain. We are robbing ourselves of a life of deep joy, gladness of heart, sorrow. Jesus said at one point, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. Comforted. There is comfort on the other end of sorrow that many people never experience because they don't go to sorrow. They want to run from that in every way possible. And the very comfort that Jesus promises isn't received because we don't want to go there. Pain opens up those deep canyons of the heart, as I stated, feeling deeply, deeply. And when those canyons fill up with happiness, they're deeper because the pain was so deep. But the wide path, the wide path says, no, just turn on a funny movie again. No, just watch YouTube videos, and instead of thinking deeply, just watch Fail Army for the 50,000th time. Just watch something that will take my mind away from it. Do something that will keep me from thinking about that. We don't want to entertain those thoughts. Just turn on a movie. This is folly. This is what Solomon is warning us against. This is, this is folly. It's the wide path. Look at verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. The word mirth has to do with entertainment. It's, it's triviality. It's, 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 it's small. It's meaningless. It's shallow. It's just entertainment. It, it, literally, the word, you look in the Hebrew and look this up, it's, it's like this idea of just being entertained at a theater. Just, just, be, just entertain me. Let me go to a concert. Let me watch something funny. The wide path seeks such things. It's entertainment as a way of life. There's a group of people who live their lives not just from an event to an event, but entertainment to entertainment. Don't give me any dullness in my life. I can't take it. Anything that's mundane, anything that it feels like a routine, I can't handle that. I want to be entertained. And sadly, Christians have seen this as a, as a mission field. And we're going to take bored people and we're going to turn church into a house of mirth. And we're going to entertain a bored group of people. And try to dress this Christian thing up to make people think, oh, this is entertaining, this is fun. Spurgeon said, a, a time's going to come, instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. There, there's whole ministry models built on this. And I, I know that most likely, as a church family here, there's going to be people who move, and then God's going to lead you into a new church at some point, and there's going to be people in other churches that God's going to lead here. We want to be generous and, and trust that the Holy Spirit's going to lead, lead people. And we want more and more people, by the way, by God's grace, to keep coming. We have no desire to be a mega church. Like, there's no desire whatsoever we have. We hope that we always have a family feel. But if God gives increase, well, we can start, instead of starting a bunch of, church, instead of starting a bunch of services, we can start new churches around town. How cool would that be? Throughout Southern Illinois, out of an overflow of any revival that God would bring, leveraging that revival, not to just kill, keep building and talking about how great Christ Church is, but go, just go, go plant, be on mission. But there's whole ministry models built on entertainment. And 
Be warned about this. You do not come to the assembly, to the gathering of the people of God to be entertained. Amen. We are not putting together a package for you to enjoy or not enjoy. This is not something we have to rehearse because this is not a theatrical performance. We don't want to specialize in dopamine hits where people have come and they get their church high, their spiritual high. We would rather be, hang with me, we would rather be a house of mourning. Why? Because then we are a house of praise. Then we are a house of comfort. We don't want non-believers coming in here and feeling comfortable. We want them to mourn and weep and wail and cry out to God to, for repent, in repentance. For salvation. We want their palms to sweat. We want their hands to be on the back of the pew thinking, if I, if I don't repent, I'm going to have to run out of here and never come back. But I'm not going to be comfortable here. This is not a house of mirth, nor will it ever be. Nor should any church be, for that matter. Non-believers should not be walking into a church building and leaving on a Sunday morning and thinking, that was cool. It's a house of mirth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We want to be a place where there is real, true happiness, not, not just fleeting pleasures that we chase after and, oh, on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing, entertain me, entertain me, entertain me. Keep my senses all connected and going and firing. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of heart, of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. There's true joy, true, true joy for those who are willing to mourn. There's true comfort for those who are broken. Look at verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. How many people would want a group of friends and peers to sing their praises and to tell them how great they are over having somebody come up to them and say, you are wrong and this is inappropriate and you need to repent of this. And I'm telling you this because I love you. You guys have heard me say this before. Probably if you haven't, it'll be new to you. But one of the first things that was impressive about Andy to me, wherever Andy is. Oh, he's down with the kids. Um, it, we, one of the first times we ever hung out, we went and hung out, and I was going on, blabbering on and on about somebody, and I was speaking inappropriately about somebody who said something to Jordan. And I was like, you know, like, yeah, 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 she's terrible, Bob, just saying terrible things. And uh, Andy, he, let, he sat on it for a couple days. Andy always, you know, I, I, I processed by talking. Andy processes by actually thinking. And, <laughs> and so he's processing for a couple days, and he comes to me on a Monday. He's like, hey, uh, can you come to my office for a second? I'm like, yeah, yeah, but we're going to hang out, you know? And uh, he's like, sit down. I'm like, oh, all right. And uh, he said, hey, uh, Friday you sinned against this person, and you didn't help your wife. Um, you, actually, you actually caused more problem than good. And, you know, in instantly I thought, oh, man, that's right. I wish he wasn't right right. Solomon says in another place, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And it's not just Solomon, that's God the Holy Spirit speaking. If all you want is fools singing your praises, to hear the song of fools, yes, please tell me how great I am. 
please, please just get people around you that are not toxic. And get people around you who will just tell you all you want to do is, is great and amazing. And yes, you go for it. Everybody loves you. Get people to celebrate you and just cheer you on. It's the song of fools. It's what Melissa McCarthy said a couple years ago when she came here to do her the commencement speech at a special guest speaker at one of the graduations at SIU. She said, get people around you who are going to support you no matter what you do. That is wicked. That is wicked. If you don't have anybody in your life who loves you enough to say, this is, this is not good. This is not healthy. You're stupid. You're really stupid. If you just want people telling you how great you are. And if somebody comes to you and says that to you and your first thought is, you jerk, how could you? You're stupid. And sometimes God just, he uses this language. It's okay to say stupid when God says it. If you hate correction, if you just want to correct everybody else, let me ask you this. When's the last time somebody corrected you and you thank God for it? When's the last time somebody corrected you and you thank God for it? What feels better? The song of fools? Or the rebuke from a wise man. But again, the fabric of our society, it continues to be built brick by brick, plank by plank. And the society calls wise men and women toxic and encourages all to just get people around us that just praise us. We have to have people that encourage us. Walk the narrow way. Take the road less traveled. Don't do that. That's harmful. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you in the end. That's not helpful. That's going to be death. That's going to be despair. You're going to smile and laugh for a while, but it will not last. We've got to have people in our life who love us enough to not sing your praises. Not sing your praises. All of us need that person. You're going to be that person for somebody else. I'm that person for other people. I have to have people in my life. You have to have people in your life that will not sing your praises. The praises of fools, it's only good enough to be burned. Look at verse 6. For the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. This has reference to cooking. Thorns under a pot would be thrown to cook food. And Solomon says, that's what the laughter of fools is good for. You and your buddies hanging out, people celebrating you, praising you, just laughing and having a good old time. Although it does have its place and there's a holy way to do that. When that's the way of life, it's good to be just cracked up, thrown underneath that pot, into that fire, and to be burned. That's what the group of fools is like. Those people who will only sing your praises. Non-toxic people are the most toxic kind of people. You need some toxic people in your life. <laughs> you need the exact people in your life the world says you don't need. See, there's a, there's a wide path. There's a narrow path. There's books written. I mean, lots of books written. Fall right in line with the wide path. Solomon says, this is vanity. Vanity. Look at verse 7. 
Again, this is kind of choppy. We're going to start moving through this a little bit faster. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Wise people know real oppression. Fools call things oppression that are not oppression. Wise people know real oppression, and it drives them crazy. When real injustice takes place, and people who have injustice or oppression upside down, they're also willing to take a bribe and corrupt their heart to sell their soul, all the while instructing the world about oppression. But the fool doesn't know real oppression. The wise knows real oppression, but will not take quick fixes. Here's the deal. I'm going to say something that's going to sound offensive at first. We live in a society that's more outraged at a woman who would decide to live her life barefoot in the kitchen. Hang with me. That's more offensive to people than the 2020 discussion that's happening right now in the United States of America to draft women into war. We call that progress. Sending our wives, daughters, granddaughters by way of draft to bleed on the battlefields, to bleed out when in every society, regardless of the religion throughout the world, the warriors have been men. We know this according to natural law. We don't even have to have the Bible to know this. What we call progress is oppression, and it should drive Christians mad. When we're so upside down, so upside down, that the offensive picture is not the woman bleeding in the battlefield, it's the woman kicking in her bare feet in the kitchen, cooking with bare feet in the kitchen. We say, well, that's progress. You see how asinine the world is? It's crazy. So much so that even when I say that, it's like, okay, there's a rewiring that's got, got to, that has to take place because it just feels so natural. Oh, yeah, women should be on the battlefield. It, it's, friends, we have been catechized. We have been trained. We have been marketed. And we have been played. Real oppression. Talk about oppression of women. Look at where women are as a society today, talking about their freedom. Taking, when we call Super Bowl halftime shows from last year, we call that liberation. That's oppression. The problem our country is not patriarchy. It's historically bad patriarchy, and the answer is not matriarchy or doing away with men. The answer is real men stepping up, fighting for people, and honoring them in the way God has called them to. That's the answer. Godly, biblical patriarchy. And anything else is oppression. Anything else is oppression. When we call ladies to do the work of men, whatever that is, we are marching them into oppression. Real oppression drives wise men and women crazy. And we should recognize in a society gone mad, that the world calls something bad, which God calls good, and they call something good, which God calls bad, whatever that is. We know the difference. Oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud of heart. What's better, the start of something or its end? Pride of spirit or patience? Is it not true that the way the world is, it's always after something new. Nothing ever satisfies, but the way of wisdom is to sit back and enjoy the accomplishment. 
The wise man or woman is able to look at what the, what's been done, the work and the fruit of the labor, and look back and say, huh, that's, that's satisfying. I enjoy that. I don't have to have the next new thing. I don't have to have the next new whatever it is, gadget, trinket, get-rich-quick scheme. I don't have to chase this or that. I can see a thing for what it is. I can be patient and enjoy the end of the matter, not just the beginning of the matter. The way of wisdom enjoys its accomplishments. Patience is better than pride. This is maybe one of the, uh, uh, the, the interesting things here. Um, pride is celebrated in our society. Again, pride, we, we have festivals about it. Pride is seen as a virtue in our day. And, uh, and patience is minimized. Patience is, is like you're not going to get yours. It's equated with lack of ambition or foolishness. That's why, you know why debt is sky high? And debt can sometimes be debt when it's like investments or sometimes, I'm not saying all debt is bad. We should be paying our bills and all that. Yeah, hear what I'm saying. But the reason people have a million different credit cards and all this kind of stuff is because it's the pride of life. It's I want what I want now. I don't have patience. And so instead of saying, like, this is the way I grew up, I love my folks, they did a lot of right things. But growing up, the idea for me is I want something, well, I'm just going to go, I'll get a Best Buy credit card, go get a computer. Rather than, like, you mean save your money? Do you have enough money to buy something? What kind of weirdo does that? Patience is better than pride of life. What about anger? about anger look at verse 9 be not quick in your spirit to become angry for angry lodges into the heart of fools don't be quick to be angry that's what fools do and those who are quick to anger it becomes a way of the heart from the inside out they're just an angry person all the time if you don't get your angry under, anger under control from the inside out you're going to be a grumbly angry person until god breaks through until there's repentance from that anger without knowledge is acceptable and demanded from our society that's another crazy thing. Anger without knowledge is acceptable and demanded from our society. Uh, the, um, the, the, the way social media is, everybody expects um, responses from everybody else about any sort of injustice right now, immediately, right now. You've got to speak on this, and you've got to be angry about the right things. The man or woman who takes back, takes time, takes a step back to assess any given situation and get all the information is somebody that seems to be less empathetic. You don't have empathy. If you want more information and, and wait to make a decision, rather than displaying your anger immediately, you don't love people. It's foolishness. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now this is interesting. I love history. And, and we need to remember the good things about history, but here's what we don't need to do. We, we don't need to... Remember history with rose-colored glasses. When we look back and we say it was so much better then, whenever then was, like whatever your era was, whatever you enjoy, it's easy to become pessimistic about today and wish our lives away and actually live in the past and get trapped in the past. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we don't need to replicate the good things in history. We need to. We absolutely need to. We need to mind history. History is a very good thing, but we don't need to live there. You can be so historically minded that you can't be presently good. You ever heard anybody say, I'm so heavenly minded, you can't be a present, present good? You can be so historically minded that all you're good for today is grumbling at anything and everyone around you. This is something I've got to pay attention to. I hear a lot of great things about pre-1960s America. 1960s, everybody discovered drugs and, and crazy other things. Um, Woodstock, 
crazy stuff like that. Um, but there actually was. When we, when we look back in our history, there actually was things like institutional and legal racism. That, that's really in the past. There was a thing called the World War I, the Great War, World War II. There was a thing called the Great Depression. And there was horrible theology, and last, the worst of all, we've already talked, no air conditioning. So when we look to the past, not just to learn, but we idolize the past, and we look at it with rose-colored glasses, we often see or often miss the pain that was there. What we think about today, we think, man, things are really, really terrible. And you know what? We're all going to go to really nice houses today. And we're going to eat a really good meal today that we didn't have to hunt for, unless you're getting the venison out. Thank you, Brandon. He hooked us up with some, man, venison bratwurst last night. Was that not the best venison? Somehow it didn't taste like venison. It was like, I don't know, miraculous bratwurst. I don't know. You're going to go and open your refrigerator, get a snack when you want a snack. You go and get you some sweet tea. And if it's not as sweet as you would like it, you're going to pitch it and make a whole new thing. Do you want your sweet tea the way you want it? Half sugar, half tea. <laughs> and we miss how good things are right now. Like how good life is. And we idolize the past. So we have to live in the present. We can't live in the past. We can't. We gotta look ahead, what God's doing. verse 11 and 12. We're going to connect the dots here in a minute. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who, are, who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom as an inheritance. Uh, the prodigal, the prodigal is a really good way to illustrate verse 11 and 12. Uh, because the prodigal, he didn't want wisdom, he just wanted money. The inheritance he wanted was, was the stuff. He wanted the money. He didn't care about the inheritance of wisdom from the father. Now, to be fair, the older brother didn't either. So, I mean, the older brother isn't the, the one here that, that we look at and say, let's all be the older brother. But the prodigal didn't want wisdom. He wanted money. Wisdom was not desired. The, the cash was. As for us, wisdom is good with an inheritance. What we don't want just an inheritance. What we value in the lives of our predecessors is the wisdom that they have had and they've walked with through the decades. So we want to glean from that. What's the wisdom? The life lived from the highs and the lows, the mountains to the valleys, the difficulties and challenges to the joys. What can I glean from you? We should never want, ever, ever, ever just want the money, like the prodigal, that's foolishness. Wisdom will preserve your life in ways money cannot. Wisdom will preserve your life in your way money cannot. And the man in Luke 15, it was, he had this, this um, uh, if he would have had this wise son, the man in Luke 15, who had the prodigal and the older brother, uh, he would have enjoyed, would have been this third brother, he would have enjoyed the presence of his father. He would have gleaned wisdom. He would have worked hard in the land. He would have celebrated when his brother came home. He would have thanked God for the relationship he had with his father. 
But foolish people do not want wisdom. They don't want wisdom. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Money can protect you, okay? So how is wisdom like that? In the way that money can protect you, wisdom can protect you. And if you have wisdom, you're going to avoid many pits that you would fall in if you didn't have it. foolish people don't want that. They walk the wide path. Give me the money. Give me the inheritance. Give me the stuff. I don't want the wisdom of the past. That's why one of the things I grew up in my, the, the millennials and people that are, you know, from 40 to 24 right now, we grew up in large part hearing by secular culture, live your dreams, find out what you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. That kind of stuff. Find your own way. And I remember uh, we were talking one time in school with this uh, kid named uh, Andy, and Andy, we were all talking about, you know, what, I think you guys have heard me say this too, but we were all talking about what we're going to do after school, and we're all like, yeah, we're going to college, this kind of stuff, and, and Andy's like, you know, borderline tears, I got to work with my dad, you know, his dad owned HVE's AC company, and we're like, you loser, you know, like, you got to go work with your dad because we're all like wanting to find our own way, you know, like we're not going to follow in the footsteps of our predecessors. We're going to cut our own path, do our own thing. And Andy's like, you know, I just got to do my own thing. Well, you know, he started off probably making 50 grand a year when he was 18 years old. He now owns the company, the HVAC company, he probably makes 200 grand a year. And while we're all being goofy in college, this guy's banking money and building a savings account and working with his dad. And we're all thinking he's the foolish one. You know, like, that's just the way of the world. Find your own path, forget the history, forget past, forget the wisdom of the past. And then we're taken to the work of God. Look at verse 12. Or, look, excuse me. Verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Let's practice this wisdom here. Okay, let's put into practice everything we've, we've talked about here. Who can contend with God? Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Those who walk the wide path are like, me, me, I can. God's always the one at fault, not me. I can fix it. I can do better for myself than God can do for me. And whatever he's made crooked, whatever I think is broken, I can fix it. I can, do, I can, I can really help the Lord out. If he exists. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Who can correct God? Who can bring him counsel? Who has strength or wisdom to change what God has done? Nobody. That's the, I mean, the answer is rhetorical. It's nobody. Nobody. Even those walking the wide path. Look at verse 13. Wisdom applied. 13. Or excuse me, 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that the man may not find out anything that will be after him. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Catch that because there are many, many really good Christians that cannot enjoy the day of prosperity. We've talked about this a lot. They cannot enjoy the day of prosperity. They feel guilt over it. They wonder why God has not blessed others like they've blessed me, like he's blessed me. It takes a lot of spiritual maturity. A lot of spiritual maturity to enjoy the day of prosperity and to actually be joyful. 
to actually love God and thank Him and keep pursuing Him and be dependent upon Him. It's very easy in the day of plenty to never ask God for bread because you got some. Or never thank Him for the bread because it's a given. It's very difficult. It takes godly men and women to joy, be joyful in prosperity. To enjoy his good gifts. But then we're told, and in the day of adversity, in the day of adversity, remember that God has made them both. Why has God made the day of adversity and prosperity? So that man may not find out anything that is after him. Um, Days of prosperity and days of adversity remind us, they remind us of our limitations. You know, prosperity can have people walk in, you know, you just feel like, man, I'm invincible. Everything I touch turns to gold. And then in a moment, a day that goes bad, the day that goes a way that you never thought it would go, in a minute you're thinking, I am the most vulnerable person in the, in the world. I'm exposed. I, I cannot live independent of God. God has made both of them. They remind us that we are not God and we don't know the future. We must know We must know that there is never a day, never a day that we live from this day forward or any day we've lived from this day back. There's never been a day that goes by that Psalm 118, 24 is not true. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The worst day you've ever made, that verse is true. The worst day you've ever lived, that verse is true about that day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God doesn't own the good days only to give the bad days to Satan. You hear that? So often we're confused about what good and bad is, even, because of limited perception. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, in both the day of adversity and the day of the prosperity. The fool can't take that. The fool only sees God's handiwork in the day of prosperity. The wise understand that God has made them both. I don't understand why or how, but God is good and I will be glad in it. Job said this in Job 1, 21. Naked I came from my father's or my mother's womb. <laughs> That'd be weird. Naked I came from my father's womb. 2020, <laughs> naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's a man who walked in Psalm 118, 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I will praise him no matter what. But those who walk the wide path say, God, if you don't make my day every day good, peace out. Peace out. If I don't get that job, if you don't answer this prayer, I'm going. The wide path, I'm going to get mine. We need to be like Job. We need to learn from the wise King Solomon. We need to take the the road less traveled. We need to walk the narrow way. And we need to see Jesus in this. Jesus. Jesus is for us. He did not simply keep the letter of the law. We've got to hear that. He he became wisdom personified. He is wisdom personified. When we look at wisdom and foolishness, the wide path and the narrow, we can see that Jesus didn't just dot every I and cross every T. He lived out from the heart. Wisdom personified. Being foolish is sinful. I hope you know that. Being foolish is sinful. Being impatient, going out and getting what you want now, surrounding yourself with the company of fools, all of these are are other ways of saying this is sinful and stupid. 
Jesus was never foolish. He was perfectly wise. Day in and day out, he used that knowledge perfectly. Wisdom applied. Knowledge applied into any and every, every, every situation. And he did it perfectly from the inside out. He didn't question things that he didn't understand. Well, he didn't understand anything. He didn't misunderstand anything. But he didn't question things like when he, when he goes to the cross, if, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. When he's led by the devil into the desert, he defeats the devil by, by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, not questioning God. He took God at his word. He walked in wisdom and died a fool's death. He died a fool's death. We've talked about this two or three times now going through Ecclesiastes. He died in the place of fools that we might live. That we might live. Friends, Christ is for you. As we go through this, let me just give you a little secret here. The wisest among us still at times make foolish decisions. The wisest among us. And as we walk this road, the narrow path, God is going to continue to grant us more and more wisdom. We're going to obey Jesus more and more. But you're still going to bump up in the days of adversity. You're still going to bump up in the times of plenty, where you don't know what to say or do. You don't have the wisdom that you feel like you need. And then you're going to look back on yesterday and think, that was foolish. That was really foolish. And we have these promises that Christ is he's for us. He has forgiven us. He lived out wisdom, wisdom personified perfectly in our place. And in that place of rest, knowing that Christ lived and died for me, we are free. We are free by the grace of God to live our life to not fear the house of mourning, to not, not fear the day of plenty, to not gather ourselves, gather around ourselves non-toxic people who just sing our praises. We're free to begin to live a life of wisdom. That's what I want for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. Thank you. Just thank you for the wisdom that you give us, for wisdom from on high. Help us as we respond. There was a lot, a lot that I just threw out there as we looked through those Proverbs in Ecclesiastes. There's just a lot there. And so, Holy Spirit, I know that there may be something you're doing in somebody's life based on one of those verses. And then over here on the other side, there's something you're doing in somebody else's life. And I, I pray that you'd help them remember all that was said in those, those verses and that you'd help us just to respond to you in the way that we need to respond. Please help us. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would open their eyes to their need for you and that they would trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we get to sing. If anybody wants to pray, you can pray to the Lord. He hears you where you're at. You can come and ask me to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. Um, and you can pray with somebody in your row. Pray with family members. Whatever the Holy Spirit's leading you to do, just follow in that. Let's sing. <laughs>